Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. In today's episode, we engage the experts and listen in on a conversation between two experts in the field of environmental law, Special Agent Andrea Abat and Professor Tracy Hester, both of whom are joining us from Houston, Texas. Andrea Abat has been a special agent with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Office of Criminal Enforcement, Forensics, and Training since 1997 and has over 28 years of experience in criminal investigations, ethics, integrity, and professional compliance, national emergency response, and project management. She is a member of the International Association of Chiefs of Police and is chair of their Environmental Crimes Committee. Andrea is a certified crime scene investigator and is a member of the International Association of Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers. Some of the work she's done as a special agent with EPA include investigating the anthrax attacks that occurred in Washington, D.C. in 2001, coordinating and managing EPA force protection support in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina, and providing crime scene forensic support on the North Slope of Alaska. Professor Tracy Hester is an environmental law professor at the University of Houston Law Center, where he focuses on the innovative application of environmental laws to emerging technologies and risks, such as climate engineering, nanotechnologies, genetic modification, and advanced wind and other renewable projects. He is also co-founder and co-director of the University of Houston's Center for Carbon Management and Energy. Prior to joining the University of Houston Law Center, Professor Hester was a partner at Bracewell and Giuliani, LLP, for 16 years, where he led the Houston Office's environmental group. Professor Hester is a member of the American Law Institute, the American College of Environmental Lawyers, and the World Commission on Environmental Law. He has chaired various committees with the American Abar Association Section on Environment, Energy, and Resources, including its Environmental Enforcement and Crimes Committee. He is currently Vice Chair of the Greater Houston Partnerships Sustainability Advisory Committee. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me to do this podcast. As always, it's an honor to do anything with the Environmental Law Institute. And I know that I'm not the only one who appreciates the great work that you guys do both domestically and internationally. So I'm uh, proud to be part of this podcast, but also looking forward to where this podcast goes. I think you're going to have some very interesting speakers. For myself, I greatly appreciate the introduction. I think that the only thing I would add is that it has been uh, particularly interesting watching the nature of the work change in environmental law, in particular as the uh, focus on issues related to climate change and uh, let's just say consistency and environmental policy implementation have really risen to the forefront. And both of those obviously will percolate in the background for some of the issues we might talk about today. I am Andrea Abat, and I'm grateful for that introduction. Um, I, I think uh, you have summed up the uh, length and breadth of a, a really wonderful career that I've been blessed to have in federal service. I uh, will talk a little more as, as uh, Tracy and I engage on uh, similarities in in the work that we do and um, some of the most important 
uh, things that we'd like to bring to your audience's attention as it pertains to environmental enforcement, uh, environmental criminal enforcement, and uh, environmental law. Uh, although I will say that I was a little disappointed that you didn't mention that uh, Andrea is a proud graduate of Texas A&M, and I, if I remember correctly, you were the first woman to march with the Texas Cadets as a senior? In the band, that's correct. <laughs> My reputation precedes me. That probably <laughs> means nothing to anyone in Washington, D.C., but in Texas, that, that, I was a trailblazer. So, <laughs> Just ask Energy uh, Secretary Perry about the importance of A&M. Mm -hmm. So. Okay. Today, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about our work in the field of environmental investigation and in environmental law. So with that, this is uh, really meant to be a bit of a conversation. So I'm hoping that we can just fluidly cross different topics and ideas. But of course, the, the base one, the one we should start off with first is basically, how did you end up where you're at? What got you interested in not only environmental, but also criminal investigation, which is a rather rarefied subset that intersects two very complicated areas of law. Uh, absolutely. I uh, And I can say from the outset, there is not another type of law enforcement I believe I would have entered into. Um, in 1993, I was just coming out of being an engineer officer in the Army and came back to the States to become a emergency response contractor uh, for the Environmental Protection Agency. And in that capacity, I was responding to different types of emergencies in Houston and the, the greater five-state area. Uh, and uh, I also met the criminal investigators, the special agents with the EPA at that point, and was helping them collect their evidence for their cases. Uh, around the summer of 1996, one of those agents said, look, would you like to get out of that moon suit and that protective equipment and we'll give you a badge and a gun? And that sounded like a great idea. And here, here I sit uh, some 23 years later. Uh, it, it sounds like just from the case listing they described a little earlier, it's been quite a ride. So, Chris, what are some of the misconceptions about your job? When, when you tell people what you do, what they give you, usually some odd questions, I'm guessing. From the outset, the 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 first one is always, EPA has cops. That, that's <laughs> it. What do you do? You hug trees. You're the... You're the uh, bird and bunny police, is that correct? And uh, the greatest one is I believe people think that I um, am the person cleaning the ducks with the Dawn dishwashing liquid. So uh, lots, lots of misconceptions. Um, it, we're a very small law enforcement uh, component inside a large regulatory scheme. So I can understand uh, why people are um, not sure what we do. <laughs> It, and I'm assuming that part of your experience is you also interface with other agencies and law enforcement as well. So you deal with the FBI, you deal with other folks in Absolutely. Same, large complex cases. It seems to me that part of your job is juggling jurisdictions. Absolutely. We work with uh, state, local and federal counterparts, uh, multi-agency uh, operations to bring the really to bring the best uh judgment to bear on any particular environmental crime. Mm -hmm. So uh, given that, it's a good, the complex nature of it, what, what are some of the biggest challenges that face in criminal investigations, particularly out in the field or dealing with prosecutions? 
I think one of the the biggest uh, problems is that it's it's a fairly new law enforcement discipline. It's only about forty years old, and we may use techniques and principles and doctrines that are many, many, many years old. But the idea of criminal enforcement for environmental crimes is a fairly new one. So that's a lack of knowledge on what constitutes an environmental crime um, from the citizenry, from local police that are on the beat that are exposed to environmental crimes, um, to the, the, the judges. Um, so it becomes incredibly important to develop a significant liaison effort and it's an education process that we go through um, there there it's crucial in especially because this is a self-reporting um, industry you know we 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 basically depend on the people on the other end of the permit or the other end of the facility to not uh, be untruthful with us and um, that's unique in that respect and when they don't when they don't tell the truth, um, enforcement is a crucial response. And sometimes if they continue to uh, thumb their nose at the regulations and the statutes, then criminal enforcement is the most important hammer to, to, to bring to bear. But I wondered if you had any perspective on um, challenges that face the environmental field uh, or the environmental law field. Well, that, that- that's a rather sprawling topic. Uh, I, I, if I could zero in a little bit in terms of what challenges are facing environmental enforcement, and you know, to a certain set, the way that also transects with environmental investigations, I think the biggest challenge has been what I'll just call stability of commitment to the enforcement programs, which is obviously subject to the political moments of the national scene, but. In a more institutional sense, one of the other challenges just is that as environmental laws and regulations have grown more complex and become iterative, essentially, as they're proposed, reproposed, revised, changed, part of the element of any environmental criminal investigation is not only the bad faith, the lying, cheating, and stealing, but also the failure to comply with the substantive standard. And the more complex those standards are, the uh, more challenging it becomes for environmental investigation and enforcement. So uh, you know, for every case where it's pretty drop-dead simple, someone pouring a drum in the middle of the night into a ditch without a permit, there's also a complicated case that might deal with ambient levels of air pollution that someone should have caught and should have dealt with but didn't. But is it criminal? And I, I see the cases I've watched over the years – that complexity of regulatory compliance side of this ledger has gotten more and more challenging. Agree 110%, if, if that's even possible. I validate what you say over and over. Uh, and I will say for special agents in the field, they, um, they have job security because people are uh, continuing to lie, cheat, and steal. Um, and uh, But it's also a, a difficult process when the regulations are purported to be so difficult that someone can't follow them. So I appreciate that that uh, challenge, definitely. Given that backdrop, there's 
always the incredibly unfair question, which is like asking which one's your favorite child. But what's been your favorite case? What's been the favorite investigation that you've gotten to work on that, that you can talk about? Uh, as uh, was discussed during the introduction, um, I it was incredibly gratifying work to work on the Amerithrax investigation in Washington, D.C. in September and October of 2001. Uh, where we were able to find the Leahy letter um, eventually. and um, But the, the trip to the North Slope of Alaska in 2006 was definitely um, a highlight for me and for my career. Um, I was able to be part of a team of folks when in uh, two, 2006 it was discovered that there had been a spill onto the tundra um, that had gone on for approximately five days or so that was unreported. So about by the time people got onto the scene, there were about 200,000 gallons of oil across the tundra. Uh, that's a violation of the Clean Water Act to, to put a pollutant across the tundra. And, and it's a very delicate system there in the North Slope. We put a team together of investigators and scientists and um, brought all the equipment and everything we needed up to the North Slope um, to be able to conduct a forensic mission and collect the evidence that the case agent from Anchorage needed um, to be able to prove his case. Well, I noticed you omitted a very important fact. Was this trip to the North Slope in winter or summer? Well, it was in August, but it still was very, <laughs> very chilly. Uh, so I, I uh, th this was a pipeline um, in the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. It was a 36-inch pipeline that had um, a small pinhole that over a period of time leaked. Uh, it, it, there was evidence that was gathered that that indicated that the company had purposefully to save money decided not to maintain the pipe the way they are supposed to. And that is to run tools through it uh, to be able to clean that pipe and clean the sludge that accumulates in it. So over a period of time, this sludge, uh, which basically um, uh, biological activity in that sludge began to eat away. There, an acid was produced and it began to eat away at the pipeline. They saved about $10 million dollars over the course of deciding not to implement that maintenance strategy. Um, and in the end, we got the evidence that the agent needed. Um, we were able to get a metallurgist to be able to evaluate it effectively. And uh, British Petroleum um, agreed to uh, plead to a Clean Water Act violation and also uh, provide $20 million in fines. So $8 million of those went to the state of Alaska and, and to um, some really important fish and wildlife um, and uh, preserve and, and other kinds of efforts uh, that are protective. All right. Well, a small detour into the weeds, but to our audience, anyone listening to a podcast in Environmental Institute, a, a dialogue between experts should expect to be dragged into the weeds occasionally. <laughs> I, so you mentioned the savings of $10 million and the fine was $20 million. That sounds like the Alternative Fines Act. Is this basically a recovery of double the damage that was done by the violation? Uh, it that may have have come into consideration during the plea agreement. Um, I I do know That's that right, it was a plea. So there's not th an actual there was a rendering. plea. Okay. Absolutely. So they had agreed um, 
they probably use that calculation as a place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that it started much higher than that, and that was where the resolution came to. And that was a misdemeanor, not a felony? It was a misdemeanor. So a $20 million misdemeanor. Correct. A $20 million misdemeanor. So, and it's a company that that has known um, additional problems, certainly. Mm-hmm. They, they have been a common... Um, regardless of where they are in the country, they've been a, a, a common uh, subject for us at various times throughout our years. So uh, I, it, we'll, we'll save Deepwater Horizon for another podcast. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. th- but that was definitely the, the most interesting case. And um, that type of sampling mission really had never been done before. So we instituted uh, based on the uh, scientist and, and agent who who serves both roles for us, was able to develop uh, uh, an appropriate method that we could use there under the extremely cold circumstances to be able to collect what we needed. So fantastic outcome for the agency and good deterrent message to the industry. Mm-hmm. Even on the north slope of Alaska, there's still accountability. I would be interested in understanding um, from your perspective, what are some trends and strategies that are making significant impacts in the field of environmental law these days? Uh, well, for a three-hour podcast, we might make a scratch. <laughs> I, for digging in on the ones that seem to have the most relevance for environmental investigations and environmental criminal prosecutions, uh, I would think one, and this sounds perhaps a little bit geeky, but the increasing opportunities for using different types of technologies to make enforcement possible that, frankly, was pretty challenging in the past. So, for example, uh, there's clearly enormous opportunities to be had from things such as remote sensing, where instead of actually having to do a detailed sample grab and uh, QAQ, I'm sorry, quality assured, quality controlled chain of custody laboratory sample, you might be able to generate equivalent data needed for a criminal prosecution from a distance, from outside a fence line, from using the right kind of imaging that might detect a leak or release and what's in that release without uh, actually having to have a search warrant, for example. But obviously that raises issues of Fourth Amendment search and seizure and rights of expectations of privacy. But that also would include drones in criminal enforcement, the use of being able to do data mining of large data sets and find essentially data forensics to identify fraud that frankly would be very difficult to monitor for someone who is intentionally falsely reporting, but nonetheless leaves fingerprints that make it clear that that data they did submit actually was fake. All those are happening at the same time. And they're collectively having a synergistic effect on what kinds of cases we might be looking at in the not too distant future that would have been very difficult to bring, but may suddenly now be much more feasible. Uh, The other one is kind of a strange potpourri where there is increasing tension, and maybe I'm a little too steeped in Texas, but I think it's true in other states as well, in terms of who's calling the shots. to the extent that there's perceptions on one level of government that criminal prosecutions have gotten too uh, uh, enthusiastic, uh, brilliant uh, in one way, you'll see state legislatures passing laws that may restrict the capacity of a local DA to bring an environmental prosecution. Uh, You may see greater interest by the federal government 
to exercise uh, oversight over investigations. Usually that's more on the civil side, but nonetheless, that tension, which is not federalism, it's more a sense of which sovereign has the hand on the wheel, is becoming a little bit more pronounced. And then last, uh, an increasing interest in looking for the potential criminal dimensions of uh, non-compliance that has big consequences. You know, we, I mean, we mentioned Deepwater Horizon a second ago. I mean, to the extent that there has been an accident and that there has been serious environmental damage or injury or death, the question as to where the, the line is for making that criminal as technology and safety standards raise the bar and the expectations on what's the right practice. It makes it easier as well to say that failure to adhere to those and the consequences caused by those, uh, it, it becomes more susceptible to a criminal mind uh, framing. So you know, put all those together, it, it makes for a very interesting time in environmental criminal prosecution enforcement right now. It, you know, they don't all push in the same direction, but they tend to, I think, spotlight certain kinds of cases in certain jurisdictions. But... Uh, Bottom line is that this is not an area that's going to sleep anytime soon. Absolutely. When I hear you talking about those uh, those significant impacts, um, I think about the investigative discretion that a special agent for EPA uses, and there is a uh, certain discretion that a prosecutor has to use under those same circumstances. So, trying to get those to meet at the the appropriate level, whether it's Civil, administrative, whether it's state, local, or federal, um, is is an ongoing conversation, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, then let me sort of switch a question around since I, I'm a little distressed. I feel like I may have talked more than you, and I think you're the one who's got the interesting career, as I said before. Right? Now, given what you've done and where you've been, what advice would you give someone who walked into your office who is just starting and would be interested in getting into uh, – the field of environmental investigations or criminal prosecutions? I I can say definitively, you can be one of three things. You can be a problem maker, you can be a a problem pointer, or you can be a problem solver. And a huge part of this job is being a problem solver, being organized and and being able to uh, have the uh, courage to put the puzzle together because that's what each of these very, very um, complicated investigations involve. They are an enormous puzzle from uh, developing probable cause to gathering evidence, to interviewing, um, to conducting search warrants, arrests, uh, and, and, and bringing it with the prosecutor to trial and to hopefully adjust resolution. Um, it is incredibly gratifying work, but I would uh, say probably the, the best thing you can do for yourself, regardless of the work you do, is be a problem solver. So it's not an area where there's a program or a field of discipline that you need to pick up on, or is it something that folks learn by doing? Great question. I uh, I have a degree in construction management. I've never used it. I can hammer a mean nail is what that means, I think, because I went into the Army and then I came out and, and began working in the environmental field. Um, both uh, 
both the environmental aspects and the law enforcement aspects can be taught. And through uh, the Law Enforcement Training Center, anyone who is interested in that would would learn those things. They would learn the, the basics of law enforcement. They also would learn the basics of environmental crimes investigations. So um, not a particular path that I can look across the spectrum. When I have interviewed people who are looking to become agents, we've had everything from lawyers to um, former criminal investigators to people with uh, that came from the Peace Corps. So uh, do, you, do you care about uh, the environment? Do you care about the future and our natural resources uh, that are here in this country that need to be protected um, for generations to come? And are you willing uh, to put your intellect to work on these complicated cases? And, and you're ready. Hmm. I I would ask you the same. Um, What advice would you give young people in your class or your students? Okay. Uh, Well, with the caveat, I'm probably going to share from the perspective of what I talk about with students. So from that perspective, someone who is just starting out and really trying to decide where that first important handhold is to start working your way up. And the the sort of – the easy, facile answer is essentially uh, try – first of all, I want to make clear. My understanding is that if you want to do environmental investigative work, there is no prerequisite. There's no mandatory certification. It doesn't give you a privileged place to have to go through the FBI or have to go through a police department. Environmental investigators come in all stripes and all walks. You're absolutely correct from that perspective. If you're a lawyer, especially a young lawyer interested in the field – uh, I think the thing that I would advise is a little bit hard to quantify, but it's the sense of anticipation. Uh, a lot of times, if you wait for the phone to ring for a client to bring an environmental prosecution to you, you're, that phone is not going to ring very often, frankly, unless you are extraordinarily lucky to be at a place where it's already been ringing for a while and you just happen to be in that same office. You need to anticipate where the issues are going to come up. You need to essentially position yourself before the arrow falls there and build the expertise so that when the moment comes, people will call. So that might mean, for example, becoming more familiar with certain types of uh, regulatory compliance frameworks, particularly, say, in air, particularly in water where that technical expertise is enormously important, but then also becoming more familiar with criminal enforcement. Because while there are lots of extraordinarily good environmental technical attorneys, and there are lots of fantastic criminal trial lawyers, the subsect of those two, the people who are both, is incredibly rare. If you can pick up the skill sets on both of those fronts and let it be known that you're thinking about issues that clients are gonna ultimately have to tangle with, that would be my suggestion. It, it's, it's not quick. It's that it, it, it's very rewarding if you can position yourself in the right place. So it sounds like patience is a virtue. Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, patience, but also a little bit of uh, boldness of character and planting a flag someplace uh, without necessarily having a guarantee that it's the place that you is absolutely the right place, but having the courage to do it anyway. Outstanding. Both of our jobs take courage, definitely. Um, can you articulate what is uh, one of the most 
helpful pieces of advice that you've received um, that that's helped frame your work? Uh, uh, okay. From again, this kind of perspective of an environmental lawyer, not necessarily tethered just to environmental investigations and crimes. So I think it cuts across it. Uh, one of my great strokes of good fortune was really almost by accident. I had an opportunity to work with a fellow who was one of the first leaders of the environmental enforcement units at the Department of Justice. And he told me in his office that he knew dozens of lawyers he could call who knew the regulations forwards and backwards, but that the thing that he prized was creativity the ability to take those regulations and rotate them 90 degrees and see a new way to apply them or to anticipate something that people didn't see coming. And that creativity is something that you have to actively cultivate. You have to want and seek and look for it to make it happen. And it's hard. It's, it's, it's such a challenge just to learn all the laws and the regulations and the processes and the personalities, that that's a huge hurdle at the start. But you've got to keep your eye open to that distinguishing hallmark of seeing around the corner, of extrapolating, and that positions you for not only you know being valuable, but also enjoying life. There's enormous joy to be found in that kind of creativity. Now, I know in terms of practical career advice that may be a little frustrating to a law student who's just getting a law degree or someone who's just starting their practice. But I think it underlies a lot of the other more concrete, uh, prosaic advice I might give. How about you? I hear you talking about idealism, and I love that. I love that you have been able to, all these years, mm-hmm. keep that as, as a crucial part of, of who you are and how you do the work that you do. Well, I, I'm seeing in what you're talking about as well, though. I mean, so, yeah, obviously, I assume you have uh, bright-eyed youngsters come into your office and say, well, what do I need to do? Well, I will tell you that uh, early on for me, I learned some crucial lessons. And I think I have carried that with me uh, throughout my career. And that I don't, I don't believe that regulation and uh, economic prosperity have to be at odds with one another. I believe that the issues with which we're dealing crosses the aisle. It doesn't care if you're black, you're white, you're old, you're young. We're all affected by environmental pollution problems. Um, but it's still difficult for people to understand a crime associated with it. And so early on, and you referenced it, you represent yourself, uh, this idea of everything that any of the subjects that I ever looked at, I looked at it from the lens of lying, cheating, or stealing, or all of the above. And when I was able to, at each of those cases that I worked, when I was able to put it in those terms, I could explain that to a grand jury. I could explain that to a prosecutor who had never worked an environmental crime case before. I could explain it to a judge who had questions about it. And uh, today, where I have the good fortune of being able to um, train um, internationally and nationally, I, I always 
include those uh, that lens to be able to look at that lying, cheating, and stealing. The company that is doing it correctly should not be punished because they are disposing of hazardous waste appropriately. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation. As always, it's a delight to talk with you. Thank you for your time. And again, you know, thanks for the opportunity as well to Environmental Law Institute for making this possible. I will let the audience know that it's my hope that as soon as the mic turns off, we're going to keep talking about some of the interesting things that have come up during this podcast. But thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Tracy. This has been just a pleasure. And I do look forward to continued conversation with you um, and wish you the best in all that you do. Thank you to the ELI as well. Thank you, Professor Hester and Special Agent Andrea Abat for joining us on this podcast. We appreciate your insight on environmental criminal investigations and enforcement. Thank you again to our guests and to our podcast production team. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.